We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy yourself. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happened. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1990's The Exorcist 3, written and directed by William Peter Blatty. Here's a clip. (laughs) 17 years ago, an extraordinary motion picture touched our most profound, nameless fears. Do you dare walk these steps again? Satan grows stronger. You believe in possession, Father? He has found a haven. Come to take a little blood from you, Father. He has taken possession. The boy had been crucified. His web widens. I've just never seen anything like this in 20 years. Inside this cell. Killer drove an ingot into each of his eyes and cut off his head. Inside, a man. Who are you? I am no one. A man we thought had died 17 years ago. He is inside with us. He will never get away. This time you're going to lose. The real terror is back. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. Okay, that was a clip from 1990's The Exorcist 3, written and directed by William Peter Blatty, based on his novel Legion. Uh, my name is Patrick Murphy. Joining me today to talk about this film is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? So excited. So excited. This movie's scary. This should be a good one. I, I've never seen it before. So, uh, what? Didn't, never had seen this one. Pass it by just due to my own lack of interest in exorcist movies. Also, in having seen so many movies involving exorcisms that all seem like the same. Now, before, uh, before we introduce the guest, can I just quickly ask, are you a fan of the original? Not particularly. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I've always been kind of bored by it. And I don't know if it's because my Catholic upbringing made me not scared whatsoever of being possessed. 
<laughs> but but I've always found it to be so interesting that people consider that the scariest movie of all time. Yeah. Sorry, the reason why I asked is because I eventually, not maybe this year, but I do want to get around to reviewing part two and the original film eventually on the podcast. Sure, The Heretic. Uh, I haven't seen that one either, so it'll I'll, I'll be check that one out. I've only seen the first Exorcist. Actually, no, I've seen the first Exorcist, and I've seen both versions of the, the Paul Schrader Dominion prequel to The Exorcist and Exorcist the Beginning, which is Rennie Harlan's hacked-up remake of it. Um, those are another <laughs> whole other thing. But anyway, we got to get to the, the, the guest here introducing a coming back. Uh, to the sort of cinema podcast is Simon Howell. What up? Uh, and I think Simon, part of the reason, stop me if I'm wrong, Rick, but did you not recommend this movie partially because you had been talking with Simon about it? So here's a quick story, a quick Ricky D story. I started raving about The Exorcist 3 way back in 2007. Now, I also included the movie in my list of the 150 greatest horror films ever made. We actually reviewed the movie on the podcast way back in the day. And I started recommending the movie to a bunch of like film buffs, movie buffs, bloggers, critics, writers, friends, etc., etc. And I'm pretty sure I recommended the movie to Simon as well. But every time I recommend this movie, everybody says thank you because they end up loving the movie. So I'm not entirely sure. Simon, I know you watched the movie recently, but we did review this movie back in the day on the show. Yeah, I have dim memories of that, um, and I've seen it. Uh, I, I revisited it for the first time in a long time, maybe four or five months ago, and watched it again for this podcast within the last uh, couple of days. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we can get more into um, perhaps challenging opinions later, but uh, I personally get way more out of revisiting Exorcist 3 than I get out of revisiting the original these days, maybe only due to the original's overexposure. Well, so here's the thing. I'm a huge fan of the original film. It's one of my favorite films of all time. I'm also a huge fan of Part 3. The um, The original film is a classic. It won, it won the Oscar, right? Did it? I know it won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. I believe it, it also did not win... Screen- did no, picture? only Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Silence of the Lambs is the only, only horror, horror movie. One picture. Anyways, the point is the writer and the director of this movie, William Peter Blatty, who also wrote the original, he won the Oscar for the original screenplay. So this movie, he actually wrote this movie way back in like 1974, I believe. And the studio turned him down. So he decided to turn it into a novel. It was actually written as a screenplay first turned into a novel and then adapted into this movie that we are discussing today i think this movie deserves respect like the thing is i won't say it's all underrated because when people do watch the movie they like it and they rave about it but it is overlooked because the problem is a lot of people do not like the second movie And so you get to the second movie and you're like, I don't want to watch any more Exorcist sequels. And so a lot of people just skip Exorcist 3, which is what happened when the movie was theatrically released way back in 1990. So the movie had a lot of things going against it when it was released. But I like to think of The Exorcist 3 as Peter Blatty making a David Fincher serial killer movie before David Fincher even ever picked up a camera. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the editing, the cinematography, the tone, the pace 
everything about this film, like when I watch this film, especially now, you know, looking back and now being a huge fan of a movie like Zodiac, which I think is one of the greatest American films made in the past 20 years, directed by David Fincher, I feel like David Fincher watched this movie over and over and over before he became an actual filmmaker. And it clearly inspired and influenced his career and his movie making moving forward. Um, but I'm a huge fan of this movie. I have a lot of questions. And if you guys are okay, I think we should actually just go over the plot of the movie. And there are reasons why. And I think it's because it can be confusing. At least I'm confused. <laughs> uh, my memory of the original Exorcist isn't great, but I do know the basic setup and what happens. I mean, the idea is that this picks up 15 years after the original Exorcist. And 17. you still got... What's that? 17 years. Well, I'm... They keep saying fifteen years really? in the in the movie. Yeah. What? Okay, small detail. <laughs> There's a, or maybe it know, was maybe it was written here. and or filmed fifteen years after, but was released seventeen years later, because it I doesn't make sense. The original film was released in what 73 74 73 so that's right. not 15 I, I think the confusion comes from the in one of his speeches Dorov says it took me 15 years yeah. to reassemble all the, whatever it's anyways but I, that's how long it takes to reassemble a brain guys apparently i also believe that at some point uh Dorsey scott's character says or either that or a father dyer says that uh it was 15 years ago today that, you know, the, right. the Father Carrot. You are right. You're right. Because every year on the anniversary, he, they they go out and they usually do something fun, like watch a movie. In this case, they watch It's a Wonderful Life. So you're right. So I guess it's because it was filmed 15 years after the original film was released. And that's why in the actual script and the dialogue, it still says 15. But it was released. The movie was released 17 years after the original Exorcist. So it's my bad. Let's continue with the plot. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it's 15 years after the original, uh, the events of the original Exorcist. Father Karras, at the end of that film, threw himself out a window and down a stairways in order to kill himself because he had just been possessed by uh, the demon of that movie. Uh, um, so now there have been a string of uh, murders around the city, around Georgetown, and um, oh my God, Kinderman is that the name of the the detective? Yes, yes. Uh, so. Kinderman is investigating these, and they bear a resemblance to a serial killer. Oh, you know what? Maybe I'm thinking the 15 years is because the serial killer was killed 15 years, was executed 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it would have been the exact same thing because that serial killer died and went right into the body. Right, yeah. So Lieutenant Kinderman. Bill Kinderman is George C. Scott's character. He's the main character of the movie. Damien Karras is played by Jason Miller, who's in the original film. He's the dude who went flying out the window, tumbling down the stairs, and died in the original movie. He's back. He's back, right? But not really. <laughs> this is why it's confusing. Right. And so there and is... Father Dyer is uh, is now older. He's the one that administered the last rites to Karis. Right, and he's not in the original right. film, because what's-his-face and... died. Right. Right, in real life, I mean. The actor. Yeah. Am I, am I getting this all right? <laughs> you you are, so. I believe. Right, okay. So, so the serial killer, James Venomum, I think that's how you pronounce his name, a.k.a. the Gemini killer, who's realistically inspired and based on the real-life Zodiac killer in our real world. So this dude, Jason, died 15 years ago in the electric chair. Except what's weird is that now in this movie, there's this dude named Patient X, right, who's played once again by three actors. I'm confused. And he's locked up in a psych ward but apparently the Gemini killer has possessed his body 
and he can take control of people to go out and commit crimes and murders while he's locked up in a psych ward. And this is where I'm confused. So this Gemini killer, AKA patient X is played by three actors. Yeah. I'm assuming they lost Jason Miller at some point, or they just needed a stuntman. but, um, they basically had a third guy made up to look like Jason Miller. And then, of course, Brad Dourif is supposed to be, like he says at one point, what do you see? And if you if you had a believer's eyes, you'd see the real me kind of thing. Uh, you know, he's talking to Kinderman, who, who doesn't believe in all this this nonsense. Um, so you're supposed to be you're supposed to be seeing him for what he really is, which is Brad Dourif, the, the Gemini killer. But what Kinderman sees is Father Karras. Right. And Brad Dourif does a lot of the the actual weird voices and we can talk about the sound design later because I noticed that there's a lot of scenes in the movie that are overdubbed like the scene with the family for example the dream sequence there's a lot of characters who are overdubbed I'm not entirely sure why I don't know if it was a problem with the sound design or if it was cheaper for them to not shoot sound and and record a sound later in voiceover because a lot of movies used to do that way back in the day but this was like the 90s so I can't imagine why they um, dubbed Samuel L. Jackson yeah, I, I honestly had no idea that was Sam Jack. <laughs> we can get to the distracting cameos in this movie, although that one I wouldn't count as being egregious. But... Right. So so basically, the plot revolves around Lieutenant Kinderman, who's investigating uh, a, a string of murders, and they think it's the Gemini killer who's committing the murders, even though he died 15 years ago. And he's convinced, like, this dude's going mad, right? He's going crazy. It, it is a well-written movie uh, in certain... I mean, it's, it's kind of... You can see how they... He, he made concessions, and we will also get into that. I'm sure the studio demands that there be an exorcism in this movie called The Exorcism 3. Uh, and you can see where his screenplay couldn't quite contain those things perfectly. But I think he really did the best that he could with it, and he, he still pulled it off no matter what. Uh, I should say, like, uh, I, I had not, I think I already said this, I had not seen this movie, um, but I did watch it twice uh, this week just to prepare for this. Because I liked it so much the first time. I'm going to be one of those people that says, thank you for making this recommendation. This is a fantastic movie. Um, it's probably my favorite exorcism-based or uh, themed movie, period. Now, I don't think anything else even comes close, and I include the original in that. Um, I think this is a brilliant movie for many reasons, even though it's got its, its weird little eccentricities and some flaws. I think it, it really shoots for the moon, and I, I love that about it. I, I think that what really makes this movie sing other than like the individual obvious aspects, like Brad Dourif's uh, very committed performance as the Gemini killer and George C. Scott's like howling indignation at all things, uh, which is really what you cast George C. Scott for. I think <laughs> the, the, the overall reason this movie is so good um, is it, it, to my mind, it really comes down to William Peter Blatty being a tradcath psycho uh, for whom these issues of good and evil, man and God, and, you know, the devil and the angels, uh, to him, this stuff is real. Like, this stuff has has real emotional and spiritual cachet. This is not like a... Uh, I mean, clearly, he, he's, he is um, self-conscious enough and conscious enough of his surroundings to make an entertainment with it, but there is a real sort of haunted conviction at the heart of this uh, really pretty silly movie. Uh, and it's uh, it's just not the sort of thing that a director for hire or someone not attached to the material and the themes would have made. 
Uh, and I think even if you weren't raised Catholic and don't care about possession or about demons and all this stuff, I think that that conviction and that uh, sort of almost mania comes across. And um, it also comes across in um, uh, th there is what, what I consider to be the William Peter Blatty cinematic universe, which contains <laughs> Two the exorcist, the exorcist, no, the exorcist, the exorcist three and the ninth configuration. Oh, right. Which, which is part of the universe of the exorcist. Yes, because of the uh, the astronaut connection. Um, and holy cow, people, if you have not seen the ninth configuration, that might be, I don't know if it's the single weirdest mainstream American film ever made. I mean, mainstream enough to win a Golden Globe. Uh, but it, uh, it is, holy cow, that movie is insane in, in a very, very cool way. Um, but yeah, I just, I, and those are the only movies, as far as I know, that he ever had any involvement with. And uh, it's it's quite yeah, it's quite a little career he scratched out for himself making these uh, bizarrely committed sort of Catholic parables. It's amazing. He writes one movie, wins an Oscar. He writes and directs a second movie. It's one of the greatest horror films of all time. And you also have The Nine Configuration, which is one of the most overlooked and underrated movies of all time. It's amazing. What's also crazy is he's really first and for foremost a uh, writer of comedy and he loves comedy. And you would not guess that by watching these movies. But yeah, he loves comedy and he does... He does add a bit, a touch of comedy here and there throughout this film, especially with the monologues and 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 the dialogue. Um, but I mean, look, this guy's—he wrote novels. Like he's clearly a great screenplay writer, and uh, there's a lot we can praise. But I really do want to focus on a screenplay first because this is more of a serial killer movie, right? Like we'll talk about the. Well, I guess we can talk about it now. The, the original uh, version of the film, the director's cut, did not have the whole exorcist scene at the end of the movie. So this was really a movie about a detective who's sort of going crazy because he's just falling apart mentally because of all the bad things that he witnesses in life and the investigations of these murders. And he's just giving up on humanity. He's losing hope and he's falling apart. He's having a mental breakdown. And so this is really a, a serial killer movie, which is why I bring in the connection earlier to David Fincher's movies. And it's very unlike the previous two films to the point where he should have, or the studio should have called this movie Legion, which is what it was actually based on the book Legion. By adding the title The Exorcist 3, and I think I think the studio is actually right. They were like, if we're going to make an exorcist film, and this is the third film, it's a sequel, we need to add an exorcism into the movie, which is what they did. So afterwards, they gave him like $4 million, I think, to shoot the exorcist scene at the end of the film. Um, so the movie completely changes. And I don't know if, you, if you've watched the director's cut. It feels like a completely different movie. But my point is, what makes this movie great is a screenplay because it's packed with the best dialogue ever crammed into a horror film, at least in the 90s, maybe ever. Like, it's amazing. Like, the conversations, like the conversation about the fish that's swimming around in his bathtub. The like, carp. The carp. The carp. Who, 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 who decides to write that sort of dialogue, that witty dialogue, that conversation between these two best friends in the movie, the, the detective and the priest, in a horror film? Like, it's in, an, in, a, in, an, in a sequel to The Exorcist. Like, it's, it's insane, but it's so good. Brad Dourif's performance is great, but his performance would not be as good if not for the incredible dialogue. I, I want to say something. You mentioned like the the David Fincher would have taken inspiration from this. So would Andrew Kevin Walker. I mean, the the characters in this it reminds me so much of Seven, 
just because mm-hmm. you've got the cynical detective and then you've got like a force of positivity in Father Dyer who gets killed just like the sort of the force of positivity in Seven gets her head cut off. Um, there, There's so much to compare between Kinderman and between, I can't remember the name. I don't, what is the detective's name in, uh, in Seven? Detective Brad Pitt. No, Morgan Freeman, Morgan Freeman's oh. character, who's kind of like down in the world, right? The right, world yeah. is is a is a shithole. The world is full of corruption and crime and greed and people are bad and everything's, you know, dour all the time. And that's kind of what Kinderman, it, it, where he's at in his life in this movie right now. And he's got to confront that evil, that evil that he doesn't understand or, you know, that he thinks is 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 all over the place. Yeah, for sure. Um, his name is Somerset, by the way, and Brad, Somerset, Pitt, Brad right. Pitt played Mills. But but it's also interesting that this film was somewhat inspired by Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, because in the movie, they go to see the movie It's a Wonderful Life. So every year on the 15th anniversary of, the, of uh, What's-His-Face's uh, death, he takes them out so he can cheer them up, right? So in this case, they go to the movies. And so they go see It's a Wonderful Life, which... Uh, it comes back later because there, It's a Wonderful Life's written on the... On, on the wall with his blood after he's killed. And then later, um, the Gemini killer, Patient X, references it when he first meets uh, Lieutenant Kinderman for the first time. But the point is, the point is, in It's a Wonderful Life, right? He goes back in time and he he can see his entire life played out if he died. And in this movie, you have um, Patient X, who's, who's really... Um, is it Karis? I'm getting confused with everybody's names right now. Right Karis, now. Yeah, yeah, Father so Karis. So he's being possessed by the Gemini killer, and so he has to witness the crimes that he commits because he's trapped inside. You, you get what I'm trying and, to say here? And we should say like it's it's I don't it's a different kind of possession because Father Karis had died, right. and they explained in the movie that his soul was about to leave his body, but. The, the soul of the Gemini killer, who had also just died in the electric chair, was inserted into Father Karras's dead body. Yeah. And Karras then, in the confusion, got trapped in there as well. And so, like, they have control of his body, but he is stuck there consciously and must and is forced to watch all of the evil deeds that, exactly. uh, that the Gemini killer enacts. Dude, that is why the, the film plays like a demonic inversion of Frank Capra's film. In this case, his post-suicide spirit is forced by a vengeful demon to witness all of the murder that he commits from the inside. It's crazy. It's genius. This movie's well, amazing. It's also it's worth clarifying that this sounds very convoluted when we explain it, but I think part of the brilliance of Peter Blatty's screenplay is that um, it's so much of the plot is expl- basically all of the plot of the movie is explained in the space of these um, these one or two key monologues. Um, I guess technically they're dialogues, but there's very little input from George C. Scott in these scenes, mm-hmm. uh, where Dorif, as the Gemini killer, occasionally, with Karis's face showing up, um, ex- explains from his point of view everything that went down, um, which I think could have... I mean, these scenes could have sunk... The movie under the hands of a lesser screenwriter, a lesser actor, um, and s- someone who didn't have uh, the sense of how to carry that dread through like an eight, nine, ten minute sequence, um, because then you'd realize what's actually happening, which is that you're being 
shoveled with exposition, uh, huge amounts of exposition, but it doesn't feel like that. No. But that, okay, so the screenplay is why this is a great movie, regardless if it's a horror film, a thriller, a serial, uh, a comedy, it doesn't matter. The screenplay is fantastic. But the reason why it's a great horror film is because it doesn't show us the horror. Like, there's really not much gore or blood. We, most of the killings, if not all of the killings, are done off screen. So it's one of those movies that gets under your skin and creeps you out and scares you because it leaves your imagination to run wild and fill in the blanks. And we said this a million times on the podcast, there's nothing scarier than when your imagination has to fill in really gruesome, horrible things. In this case, it's like the crimes committed by the serial killer. So that is what's crazy about the movie because it feels like it's a lot gorier and bloodier and it's not. And so rewatching it again for like, I think like the ninth time, I always think I'm going into a movie that's going to be really graphic and I'm always afraid to recommend it to people. But there's only really the scene at the end, the exorcism scene, when the priest, his body sort of, it's like, it's like melting. It's hard to explain, but there's like, yeah, that is like the bloody scene. He, he gets, he gets sort of a fix to the ceiling yeah and his skull peels off which is real gnarly <laughs> it's pretty bad it's, it's almost like because he was sort of forced to tack on this sequence i almost get the vibe that i get from that sequence is oh you wanted a horror sequence motherfuckers fine you'll get it oh definitely because it feels jarring when compared with the violence in the rest of the movie yeah but it's really the editing the sound design and the monologues that makes this movie really creepy well, I would say the imagery as well. I, I never, I guess I didn't expect the writer of The Exorcist to actually have such a good eye for framing. And he finds unsettling images. There's There are certain ones that just stick out in my mind, like when Kinderman goes to the um, the church library and is looking up the, the rites of exorcism, but shooting through sort of the lattice to create sort of a, a I don't know, a, a locked in and again, unsettling image with, with these diagonal lines uh, going through Kinderman, uh, stuff like that. He, he has a really good eye in a, for for not only composition but for staging. I love the way he places actors all over. Uh, you know, in the in the far in the background, the way that and in the foreground as well, and sort of creates. I don't know isolation for Kinderman by that. Every time that he, I feel like every time he's checking for the the hands of the of the victims, for the sign of the Gemini and for the missing finger. There's that guy with the, the I, I just think of him as sunglass cop because he has that one scene where he takes his sunglasses off and it's like, why are you wearing sunglasses indoors? Um, but that guy's always standing somewhere in the background just watching him. And he just looks over his shoulder at that guy. And it's always these silent exchanges, but it's sort of, he's out he's out here by himself. Uh, the only one who believes this Gemini killer might be back. I don't know. There's something about the staging. Blatty is very, very good at that. I, I would not, I was super impressed that, that, uh, that this guy had such an assured director, uh, director's eye. Mm-hmm. The entire film is is shot in a way that you just have to call him a genius to some extent. Like, for example, probably the best example of how well he stages a camera and the actors, it's when the lieutenant shows up at the hospital after his friend is murdered and he walks into the room for the first time. We get the point mm-hmm. of view of him, right? So it's a POV shot of what he sees. And so the camera enters the room, and we have all of the extras, the cops, the detectives, et cetera, et cetera. And they all slowly turn and look at him, 
and then they back away, right? Because they know he's about to lose his cool because this is his best friend and his best friend was killed in like the most horrible way possible. But then you have a scene where there is an old woman crawling on the ceiling like a spider and it almost goes completely unnoticed because he has you so focused on the conversation that's taking place. And so you have like a far shot, right? And it's a static shot of the room and we're listening to the lieutenant have a conversation and we are focused on the conversation. And it's, I mean, you could be forgiven for not noticing that there's an old woman crawling on the ceiling like Spider-Man. Well, and I, I think that we were obviously going to talk about the sequence at some point, so I may as well bring it up yeah. now. Um, another another thing that's brilliant about this movie is there's all these centerpiece sequences that are basically all dialogue, as we've mentioned. However, there's also an unextended sequence um, about three quarters of the way through the, through the film that takes place in the hospital at night, which features almost no dialogue and and with a couple of obvious exceptions, almost no sound, and shows him. You know, we can dissect it a little bit a bit more later, but it shows him to be a master of uh, misdirection and knowing how audiences receive visual imagery and motion. And um, and also just features clearly. Uh, I mean, many people have said uh, have argued best jump scare of all time. I'd say it's in close contention with Wait Until Dark. Um, but uh, holy cow! I mean, that sequence uh, is just bravura horror filmmaking from a guy who had never. Uh, I mean, the ninth configuration doesn't contain anything like this. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the scene on hold because I know it's gonna come up, come up in conversation yeah. after the break. But wait until dark has the greatest jump scare of all time, people, because it invented the jump scare. <laughs> it's amazing. So, so the cinematography in this movie, and you know, I have no idea who the DOP is. This is this is like the first time I come on the podcast. I have no idea who the cinematographer is. So if you guys know, let me know. But um, I love this yeah, cam shot, Jerry. Jerry Fisher is his name. Okay. Do not know who he is. I love the steady cam shots, uh, especially because a lot of the movie, if not most of the movie, takes place within a crowded environment. Like it's within a hospital or the hospital hallways or in, in a locked room in, in an insane asylum and or in a kitchen. It's not like the movie takes place outside, right? And this is like one of the coldest movies. And again, this this is why I always bring up the David Fincher comparison, but the movie is so clinical. It's so cold. Uh, in terms of, like, the colors, the camera shots, the fact that he's so patient and will hold a shot for, like, five minutes, he's got this incredible talent. But the first time I watched this movie, guys, the thing that stood out the most was the editing. It is mm -hmm. so tight. Like, like we could talk about the screenplay, and we could talk about how the movie does not have an ounce of fat. It's like, you, like, like if I were to say, hey, Patrick or Simon, you have to cut out one minute of this movie, what would you cut out? Like, you can, you, 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 you know, you could technically cut out a minute or so here and there, but it's so tight, and I love the editing because it's like he doesn't waste any time. Like, like if you think about early on when the priest is murdered, so it's like... He, he's 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 inside the uh, confessional booth the dude walks in they have a conversation he gets killed but we don't see we don't actually see the murder it just cuts we get like a shot of like the virgin mary a statue then we get a shot of the cops outside we get a shot of the lieutenant walking in and we get a shot of the lady crying like the way it's edited it's incredible like the editing tells more than the actual dialogue because there's no dialogue for like five minutes so 
it's not just the screenplay. It's not just the cinematography. It's not just the acting, which we still have to talk about. It's not just the sound design, which, by the way, I mean, the sound design is amazing. Like, uh, the fact that they had to uh, overdub, for whatever reason, a lot of the actors, like, dialogue. Brad Dourif, um just, like, it's just so creepy. Like, there's something about this movie. Like, it's not the score. Like, the score is okay. It's the sound design. And so, yeah. So, like, I think this movie is, like, incredible. Like, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's better than the original 1973 Exorcist movie. Uh, some people do. Like, some people actually think that this is the best in the series. But I, I do think it's one of the greatest horror films ever made. I think... Um... I think it's really important to say also it, it's not just about the individual elements. It's about how they work in concert. And I think the, the best example of this is obviously Bra Brad Dourif is one of our greatest psychos, uh, always has been fantastic character actor. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Uh, however, I think that his performance would not be half as effective if it weren't for the fact that the set, the, the sound editing is constantly fluctuating the uh the depth of his voice and i i i assume that part of that is in his delivery but i think they're goosing it uh in um in the ed in editing as well and uh and the and the creepiest part is that it becomes sort of impossible to tell what's coming what's coming from dorif and what's being uh what's being goosed and it adds yeah it's it's adding it's adding a, a, a whole other layer of unease are they calling these gemini killings in the papers you must get them to do that, Lieutenant. It's important. The Gemini is dead. No, I am not! I'm alive! I go on! I breathe! Look at me! Look at me! And tell me what you see. I see a man who looks like Damien Karras. If you looked with the eyes of faith, you'd see me. What the hell are you talking about? Your blindness. Tell the press that I am the Gemini Lieutenant or I will punish you. Punish me? Yes. What are you talking about? Do you dance? What do you mean? Gloria, last The sound design, like in that specific scene, when when like I'm talking about the scenes with uh, inside the uh, insane asylum, like inside the psych ward, the editing is so good, right? That there is a body double. So this is why I say there's three actors, right? Because Jason Miller is really only in the scene for like five percent of it. Like there's an actual body double you you wouldn't notice, and it has a lot to do with the makeup and the performance, but it's the way they edit the the entire sequence with the gemini killer slash patient x they they do it in the editing room right it's not like he actually talks like that in real life like they have to I, i'm not a sound guy so i'm not sure what the terminology is but they clearly construct his creepy sounds and his voice in editing and and i mean so like brad duraf does an incredible job don't get me wrong like he's one like you said he's one of the great horror films of all time he's also the voice of chucky from child's play which by the way there's a reference to child's play in this movie did you guys notice this i know yeah yeah so or a, it might only be in the director's cut because i watched both the director's cut and theatrical cut but he does reference child's play <laughs> it's really weird 
There are some odd, odd things in this movie. As far as like Patrick well, Ewing? Like yeah. Fabio? Yes. See, I had no idea who Fabio is. Like, like I just know it's the dude who, I think a bird ate his face, or I don't know what the story That's was. That's him, yeah. They, yeah, they, but I don't really know his name. I'm a huge basketball face. fan, so when I saw Patrick Ewing, I'm like, what? Is that and Larry the King is in there, too, for some reason. Larry King. All CNN right, but you see, I didn't mostly. notice Larry King, like, because he's in the background. It's not like he's, he has dialogue. They, or... they, no, he doesn't have any dialogue. They just cut to a quick shot of him in a restaurant. Are, but it's are, distracting in a way. I don't know. Are, are these all people that William Peter Blatty, like, met at church or something? Uh, I don't know. Larry King is Jewish, I think. <laughs> okay, but wait. The movie takes place in Georgetown. Where is Georgetown? Georgetown's in Washington, D.C. So why would Patrick Ewing be there? And Larry King, like I thought, that's what I was confused. Well, no, was like, Patrick was Ewing's York. not there. Patrick Ewing's in heaven as the angel yeah. of death. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, let's get it straight. Sense. I never noticed this, but there's an appearance by the Joker from Batman in the movie, which is really weird. Wait, an appearance by the Joker? Oh, oh, yeah, right. I was going to talk about that sequence. I really like that sequence too, when he's talking to the that that uh, priest who's just basically Eeyore. He's a complete cynic. He clearly hates his life and everything about it. Doesn't believe anything. Um, that whole sequence at night when they're they're having a drink, and or at least the priest is having a drink, and the uh, the lights start to flicker in the church. That's another good example of just some of the, the sequences that he can build with that dialogue. But I wanted to get back to that the the editing. Or Simon, you were talking about how everything works in concert in that in those scenes, those exposition dumps, which end up being brilliant and highly entertaining. Um, and you're right, like Dura's performance, it, it, it's absolutely fantastic, but it has to be shot in the right way. And not only that, the the editing of like I I love the part where uh, Kinderman tells him that the Gemini killer is dead, and it's this quick cut and zoom in on the eyes. Of Duraf. This is the first time you see Duraf, I believe. Um, up until that point, you are seeing uh, Father Karras. I'm alive! Yes, exactly. I love that. I love that line. This no <laughs> scream. Everything like that, it, it sort of like makes you stand up or sit up in your seat. Um, and it works perfectly with it. that. That had to have, you had to have Duraf scream and you had to have that zoom in and framing and that quick cut at that precise moment. And it absolutely works fantastically. By the way, I feel the need to add, like as great as Brad Dourif is in this movie, um, George C. Scott, who uh, clearly he's a little bit old to be playing this part. Oh God, um, yes. But, um, <laughs> Got a you know, teenage and, daughter. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that strains, uh, that strains our imagination a little bit. However, I think the reason he's so ideal for this movie is that he's just, he is the face of like boomer indignation. Um, and, uh, and just total it like he is able to, to carry what is like the essential theme of the movie, which is these uh, being stranded on hell earth with no sign from God. Uh, so to have this guy who uh, d doesn't have a spiritual life, but is connected to people who do have one and tries to sort of understand and relate to it. Um, I think he is the perfect vehicle for that kind of, uh, for that sort of worldview. And he totally vindicates his casting finally in the sequence that, uh, that Blatty didn't even want in the film when he gets him finally gets a monologue of his own, uh, which is, I, I can, I can only imagine George C. Scott having the, uh, the, the indignation required to pull that one off. 
<laughs> I could I could also picture possibly Lee J. Cobb who who played the original Kinderman. And brilliant casting by the way, getting Scott to replace Cobb. Both guys are have a similar look and can really yell. Yeah. Um uh, Cobb I could also sort of see delivering that monologue just based on some of the other work that he's done in the past. Um uh, but yeah, Scott Scott uh, is perfect. Except for his age, got just a slightly younger Scott would have been absolutely flawless. But uh, what we get is good enough. As far as uh, my guess is that he'd been attached to the project since the original days and just never got removed. I don't understand. You guys think he's too old for what? <laughs> for the part. Why? Well, he's, he's like 70 years old. What? <laughs> he's so old and he's got like a teenage daughter and his wife looks way, way younger than him. I mean, it's not impossible. It just doesn't feel right. Like the, the, his, his mother-in-law seems his age. Yeah. I looked at it yeah, like true. he's like an old cop who's about to retire and married some younger lady in life. And yeah, and never, I don't know. I just thought his performance was so good. I never really thought he was too old for the part. His performance is great. It's, it's amazing. just that when you see contrasted with his family life, when you see his family life, that's when it's kind of like, well, wait a second, <laughs> this guy. Yeah, it would almost make more sense if the lady was like his old partner's daughter or something. Right. Or like some other kind of relationship. <laughs> I don't know. But it, it works as as long as we're outside of the family life, it works. Um, all right. Well, with that, we should probably wrap up the first part of our discussion here and uh, and move on to our five questions. But before that, here's another clip from The Exorcist 3. Did you know that you are talking to an artist? I sometimes do special things to my victims, things that are creative. Of course, it takes knowledge, pride in your work. For example, a decapitated head can continue to see for approximately 20 seconds. So when I have one that's cocking, I always hold it up so that it can see its body. It's a little extra I throw in for no added charge. <laughs> I must admit it makes me chuckle every time. Life is fun. It's a wonderful life, in fact. Okay, that was another clip from The Exorcist 3, uh, written and directed by William Peter Blatty. And we are back now with our second segment of the podcast where we do our five questions. Uh, and of course, we always like to start things off positive. I don't think that will be a problem with this movie. But uh, we're going to kick it off anyway. Simon, what's your favorite scene from The Exorcist 3? Oh, favorite scene. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's really hard not to go with the first tete-a-tete between uh, the Gemini Killer and George C. Scott. I mean, there's other, there's plenty of other candidates, but I think to me that's the heart of the film is just, uh, is really just a seated conversation between two people um, and, uh, Blatty again, who had never before directed a horror film and never would again, um, I think just shows, shows you how it's done in terms of mood building, sound editing, um, directing of, uh, directing of actors, framing, uh, set design, you know, it's all there. It's, it's, uh, it's practically a, a demo reel 
Um, it's uh, it's I hate to I, I hesitate to call things perfect, but that sequence is uh, pretty much perfect. That's where you get that great no. <laughs> Um, yeah, that one is that's that one's got the best mix because you get a little bit of the Father Karis. You sort of understand what what the transition is right there, and how you sort. That's where it sort of explains. That's where you sort of get your first hint that that Karis has been possessed, and uh, you start to pick up on what the movie is throwing at you. And maybe you don't quite understand the whole revenge subplot yet, but it's building towards that. Yeah, now, and if I was teaching screenwriting or something, heaven forbid. Um, I would say like this, and I, I I don't know how it appears on the page, but I think that is a masterclass in uh, if if you have to c- convey a lot of information in a relatively short time and keep things interesting, um, here's how it's done. Dude, if you use that scene in class, your students would think you're psychotic and leave. <laughs> I, That's how you it, weed the weak ones out, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how you could teach somebody to write exposition like that. I, I just don't believe that I've ever seen somebody dump that much before and be that successful at it. Well, I think it's it's a good way to, you know, um, the, 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 the key lesson that, you know, the, um, that the, uh, the, the typical instructors of screenwriting will say, you know, uh, show don't tell, right? And this completely is, it does nothing but tell. It kind of shows through uh, certain visual and oral elements, but it's really just telling you, uh, and yet it still works. So you know, uh, rules are for pussies. <laughs> you know, part of it is that he had a philosophical vision, and you're right that he's, this movie comes across as a guy who's really passionate about this stuff, and that vision really, really helps. And too often these movies are just made by people who want to, you know, make a cool movie or something like that. I, I believe that he 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 really like you said he really believes in what he's writing here and that yeah. i mean the, the the classic maxim that is true is write what you know and the thing that william peter blatty knows is being a tradcast psycho <laughs> uh, he loves his his philosophical and moral uh arguments uh debates that's that's for sure um rick what's your favorite scene or would you rather me go first well you can go first Sure. Okay. Because I don't know if we're going to end up picking the same thing. Look, we already referenced this, and I, I had been debating. There's lots of different favorite scenes just from me watching this twice. But I am going to go with the hospital scene with the uh, the murder of Amy Kerrigan. Was that her name? Amy Kerrigan. Yep. That long, long shot of just that is just basically filmmaking 101. I, it felt like everything that I had learned, you know, way back in film school that they were, they were trying to grind into us um, about how, where to place characters and, and how to do things. Now, granted, nobody was talking about this shot and I'm actually kind of surprised that this shot wasn't shown to us uh, as an example, but. Blocking baby. It's all yep. blocking. Yep. This is a masterclass of blocking, building suspense, relieving that suspense. Like you said, false starts, um, you know, false jump scares with the guy coming out of the, like when she goes in and sees the ice melting and then that guy just pops up out of nowhere like an asshole. Um, yeah, and then the cops, like this odd little thing going on with the security guards in the background. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> are they are they relieving each other from their position? Like, what what's happening here? Are they doing like timed patrols? I don't know. It's this big dance and I, I really love it. And then it's, of course, capped off by... Uh, probably the most horrific shot in the in the film is that that 
snap zoom on uh, the, the shears and this ghostly figure, you know, with the bed sheet over them falling right behind the nurse about to cut her head off, which you it don't also, see, but you, you can imagine. It also made me wonder the the whole thing with these massive shears that sort of require some effort to open, but none to close, um, which, I, again, a very wonderfully detail-oriented um, writing. Uh, it made me wonder if uh, if Blatty was a student of Giallo's because that that murder weapon and the um, and the getups and stuff was uh, was it, it all felt extremely Giallo esque to me. It's okay. I mean, the nearly ten minute build up, it's good. It's not as good as the tap dancing sequence from the second movie by Linda Blair. That's horrific. <laughs> <laughs> I still have not seen uh, Exorcist Two, but directed by John Borman. But I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's just so much fun to watch like it's such a hot mess it's got some great moments some bad moments but i highly recommend watching it i'm not saying you're gonna like it i'm not saying it's a good movie but i think it's one of those movies that looking back on it and just trying to figure out what they're trying to do and is a studio interference is it too many cooks in a the kitchen there's some there's there's a lot of good ideas in that movie there's a lot of bad ideas too here's the thing i think my favorite scene is actually the scene when Lieutenant Kinderman, played by George C. Scott, goes back home because he thinks that the nurse is heading to kill, murder his daughter. And so he arrives, and sure enough, there is a nurse, and she's a little weird. She looks like she's half asleep, and she does attack, eventually, the daughter, right? But it's the way the whole entire sequence is played out. Like, I love the way, once again, the editing he lets his guard down, the cop walks in, he turns his back, she pulls out the giant shears, she's about to snap the daughter's neck, the, I think it's the grandma, pulls the daughter back, we get the shot of him, like the close-up shot of him, like his reaction, the, the shot of the nurse, who's not really a nurse, I think she's actually a patient in the nurse's costume, uh, mm -hmm. uniform, sorry. She had murdered the nurse. Yeah, right she's a lady, she exactly. So she falls back to the ground, and like her body bends over backwards like like some kind of like Cirque du Soleil gymnast type of thing and then it cuts to the priest or morning morning walks into the psych ward and so we get so it goes from the shot of her falling to the ground the shot of the 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 the, 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 the quote-unquote nurse the fake nurse to the door just swinging open and then swinging closed and we get the the close-up of of uh, the Gemini killer slash the patient patient x we get the close-up of his face like i just love that whole entire sequence and of course it leads to the exorcism and here's the weird thing this is one time in the history of movie making that i actually like the studio interference like like yes. i'm actually kind of glad that there are two cuts but i really think that this movie needed the exorcist scene because it's called the exorcist three and well, uh, and not only does it need the scene but for but yeah, of all these studio mandated endings in film history, this has to be one of the best because, uh, as I alluded to before, he stages and directs the fuck out of this exorcism. It is the best exorcism I've seen in a movie. I mean, I, it doesn't rely on all the normal tropes. It just ha it continues on the discussion. I, I would say uh, this may be unpopular as well, but I, I would say Dominion is probably the the other best uh, exorcist that I've exorcism that i've seen in a movie uh, well, because I, again paul schrader does it has more philosophical discussion during it than just a bunch of grunting and head spinning paul, and, paul schrader another very committed religious psycho um, yeah. <laughs> but uh i think i think another thing another reason that it works so well is that the entire climax 
it's not, uh, I think if, if it had been originally part of the film, I, I feel like it would have been more, um, it would have been quite a bit longer. I think it would have, I think because uh, he, maybe because he thought of it as an afterthought, it's the whole sequence is maybe only six or seven minutes. Uh, it's really, it's, it gets in and out. It does not waste time. No, which is great. Although here's the, here's my biggest problem with it. I actually like the scene as it's shot. It's Father Morning, though. You really, I, the first time I watched this movie, I was like, who is this guy? And what relationship does he have to anybody? I didn't understand what his character was. He wasn't in the original theatrical cut. So they, no. so basically the studio asked him to refilm, well, not refilm, but shoot the scene, add it into the movie, like, quote unquote, shoehorn it in, even though I like the scene. So, of course, he had to also add a few extra scenes with this priest, which we get earlier on in the film. The reason why I like it, though, it's because some people don't like it because they're like, well, I liked it when it didn't have the supernatural uh, blend to it. Right. But the thing is, we do have supernatural things happening prior, like, for example, the old yeah. woman crawling on the ceiling. So for me to not have this ending, there's no reason to have all of the supernatural stuff that comes earlier on in the film. So the original uh, version, the director's cut. Basically, George C. Scott's character just walks into the psych ward and he just shoots Patient X. That's it. He just whips out his gun and shoots him. That's the end of the movie. And I don't know. Like, I get why some people prefer that ending. But again, this is an exorcist movie. And if you're going to have a woman crawling on the ceiling, you're going to have a bunch of murders committed by people who are, are possessed by someone who's locked up in a psych ward. You know what I mean? Like, it just makes sense. It's not like it fits out of place. By the way, this isn't the most original opinion of all time, but uh, vast majority of director's cuts, waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Waste of time. Marketing. Absolutely. Uh, directors like to indulge themselves a lot of the time. Um, so, okay, the only thing that I wish would, ha would have happened is that because, and he couldn't do this retroactively, unfortunately, but Father Morning just it seems more than just shoehorned in he seems really shoehorned in and the first time i watched this i had missed a bit of dialogue explaining who he is that he had done an exorcism this is it was said by that again that cynical eeyore priest who, who like whose favorite movie is the fly um he talks and is so mumbly that i had missed him introducing oh yeah there's father morning there's another connection he had done an, an inter, you know an exorcism and it turned his hair white i had completely missed the father morning part so i had no idea who this white-haired priest was i didn't make the connection the first time around because i was too busy trying to keep up with the, the other parts of the plot and so by the end i was like who is this guy <laughs> i have no idea he's just this random priest how did he know to come to this cell to the hospital and perform this exorcism? Well, and and also the fact that I completely agree, and the fact that he seems to come out of nowhere makes his grisly fate almost funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he just shows up to get gruesomely murdered. Uh, I don't know if he died, actually. Uh, but regardless, I, I really do like the scene, and I think you're right that it needs... I like that it's there, and I think you get that great George C. Scott, um, you know, speech because of that scene and had he just walked up and popped the guy it just it quite wouldn't wouldn't quite have worked and i think in the book it was a similar sort of i don't want to say boring ending because i didn't read the book but it was just that the the gemini killer's father dies in the book i believe and then that's it the gemini killer leaves the body of Karis because he has no more work to do since his father is dead he he it doesn't he doesn't have a reason to go on killing anymore i also love in that sequence the way that we, we get that uh in th that incredible image of 
the Gemini's victims rising up from seemingly hell. Yes. And yeah. uh, which is a, a, a wonderful practical effect in itself, but also the way that it's made clear that it's not really manifesting. Like it, it's it's sh it's showing up in uh, in Kinderman's point of view as a way to finally uh, make him make him see, make him believe. Uh, and yeah, just, oh, what a wonderful decision. And also, weird another weird connection to the ninth configuration is that both movies feature blackface elements. I don't know what that's about. I'm not touching that with a 10 <laughs> Which, by the way, um, <laughs> this movie addresses racism several times. Like, I never even noticed it until, like, yeah. watching it for the subtle. second time this week. Because it's not, it's, it's, there's a mention of uh, one of his colleagues who apparently dis dislikes Jewish people. Then there's, of course, racism throughout the whole entire film. Other well, lot is like Jewish people either. A lot of anti yep. anti Semites in this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what were you gonna say, Simon? Oh, I was gonna say this movie probably didn't need as a sequence of Robert Loggia. Uh, tap dancing in, in blackface like we get in the ninth configuration. <laughs> oh my god, I haven't seen that movie, but now I have to check it out after watching this. You really Lots do. Of tap dancing, man. Um, yeah, we're bringing up tap dancing a lot. All right, speaking of which, though, if there was one thing that you could change about The Exorcist 3, what would it be, Simon? Um, the, the thing that always gets to me about the ending isn't so much uh, the exorcism sequence it's more the, um, you know, after the exorcism is done and, uh, you know, Kinderman shoots him a bunch of times, uh, we get that cut to, a, that beautiful cut to a, a sunrise or sunset. And uh, then we get this very abrupt shot of them burying uh, Father Karras. And then it's over. And I, I felt like I would have liked just one more little bit of denouement, one last sort of rueful conversation to find out where kinderman's head is at after all this mm -hmm. um, i think that would have been a lovely button I mean, you don't need it but i think it would have just added a, a little certain je ne sais quoi you know it it probably speaks to how he was he was originally supposed to walk in and just shoot karis and it probably was going to fade or cut to black right there um and i'm sure this was also included in the notes is that you've got to do something because that that cemetery scene was actually just footage from it and a cutscene of them excavating his grave to find out that the body was actually missing. Of course, yeah. And so they never even really shot any of that ending. Um, and then, you know, hey, just throw in a little bit of a sunset. Like, that'll <laughs> cut to random footage of sunset. Uh, and it, it works better than nothing, but you're right. I would have liked to have seen something, some kind of, like, something that lets you know that something was resolved within the character. Even though you, you kind of know that already, but it's it's nice to be let down gently so that you can sort of ponder everything that you've just seen um, instead of immediately going to credits. Um, Rick, what about you? What would you change? Man, I actually just, I just really don't like the opening, like the first like two minutes because you get the shot of a school, you get a shot of a, a few students on a canoe and then Not you like get a, a shot of helicopters. Yeah. And I'm like, right. so it's confusing. It's just like, it's just a really odd way to open up a movie called The Exorcist 3. Like, I understand that one of the kids was murdered, but it was just, it's just like the opening, the opening of the movie, I would change. Like, find a better way to open up the movie. It seems to be just a way to, to establish, this is Georgetown, college town, here are some students. But the movie doesn't take place on campus. Like, like we're ne we're ne we don't even know who the student is. Like, it just, it's, it's just so weird to have yeah. it open up on a university and then never 
re revisit or mention the university and or the victim ever again. Well, the yeah. victim was in the dream. Uh, you know, he's saying, I have dreams of a rose and of falling down a flight of stairs. That's the first victim, the the black boy that hands him the rose. Right, but, like, um, how do we... Like, that's the thing. Like, I wasn't even and, and sure we, if it was... No, like... he is referenced later on because that was the connection. They were trying to figure out why all three bodies were... Why all three victims were connected. And that, that boy's mother um, was the one who... Oh my gosh! What <laughs> what was she had figured something out? She had solved something when it came to the exorc the original exorcism. What was it? That the fact that uh, he wasn't speaking in a different language. Oh, that was it. Yes, it was backwards yeah. English. Yeah. She had analyzed the recordings and found out yeah. they were backwards English. Yeah. So, they, so he that that victim is referenced later on uh, at least. But I think there there's little. I think it was just to get the detail of the fact that the boy was crucified on oars. He, I think he wanted, not needed, but he wanted to show that visually so that later on when he said that, you'd have some sort of visual. You could you could actually picture it in your head. But why helicopters? I don't know what the – okay, so here's the thing about this movie. And it's one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by it and really like it is because I feel like there are a ton of shots that have purpose that are definitely done with purpose, like those three helicopters and you know one going in the opposite direction than the other two. And I don't know what they mean or, or what they stand for. Well, obviously they represent the Holy Trinity, Patrick. <laughs> oh my God, that's such a brilliant like interpretation. This is the great thing about it. it feels like being in film school where you could just make up anything, um, and it sounds plausible. Like that sounds great. Is that the real reason? Do, Why? Do you know that or you... no? I just made. I just pulled that out of my ass. Yeah, which is brilliant, right? Like I, I think there are so many. I think, but I don't think that these are there for no reason. I think he is shooting this mo movie with a vision and with purpose, I just don't always understand what that is within the shots. And it, it fascinates me. Well, the thing is, is it a military school? Like, that's what I'm confused about. Because then I was thinking about the war against religion, but I still don't think thematically it works throughout the entire film. Like, I think he has these ideas, but they get lost maybe because the studio needed him to cram in more footage of an additional priest and an exorcist film that he had to cut some of his own footage, I think. That's my understanding. So maybe... Some of it get, got lost in the editing room. I just thought that the helicopters were searching for the body for some reason. I don't know why I thought that, but I guess he probably wasn't. He wasn't dumped in the in the river, oh, so it doesn't maybe. make any sense. He he wasn't though, so I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me now. But that was what I originally just assumed was going on. That it, it cut from the people rowing to you know the the guys jogging down the street and the father Dyer sees the stairway and then the helicopters were searching for the body or whatever. Um, I don't know, because it also like it goes from those helicopters to them collecting evidence, you know, vacuuming up uh, all the little bits and details and then Kinderman looking at the body and all that kind of stuff. That was the, the connection I made. That may not be it at all. And, and the dream sequence, which I, I'm not entirely sure why he decided to put in a bunch of cameos from celebrities and, 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 and basketball players and whatnot. But the cameo, uh, sorry, the dream sequence, does it take place in a train station? I believe so. It's meant to, I believe, yeah, because they're supposed to be departing. They're sort of in transition in at the moment. In between, like... In between heaven or hell. In between, like, they're in the, the purgatory, I would assume. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too. Um, so, they're speaking of that... St. Peter or whatever. I just yeah. don't understand why Fabio's there, but anyways, I guess he just wants Neither to... Neither do I. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand a lot about that scene, and that was going to be my choice, that I'm not entirely sure what I feel about that scene. There are having you know the second time i watched it i knew it was coming and i tried to keep a more open mind the first time it was a little jarring and i didn't like it 
Uh, the second time I thought, okay, I can see why he's putting it in here, but I'm still not sure I like the way he did it. Um, I feel like I would, I would, if we were going to keep that scene in, if I could change something, I would do that scene slightly differently. I'm, it doesn't, it just seems odd to me when George C. Scott meets up with the little, with the little boy and he's like, Hey, I'm sorry you were murdered. Um, I know he's going for something there, but I don't think he quite hits it for me. There's and something I'm, about this movie's vision of the afterlife or whatever that really makes me think of Adrian Lyons' Jacob's Ladder. Uh, maybe it's just that maybe it's the, the that it it takes place in sort of an, like an urban afterlife. Uh, oh, but sure. I don't know. I that's what it made me think of. And it's got this like old, <laughs> like big band era thing going for it. Also. John Carpenter was supposed to direct this movie, which is really weird. I'm kind of glad that, that I, have a, I have a hard time imagining what that. I, I see. Like. I find that's one of. I find that's a piece of trivia that I just don't believe. Like I can't believe that John Carpenter would direct a sequel, and also not just a sequel, but the third film in the in in a franchise. Right. I guess him and Blatty are kind of friends, though, and that was the thing that went down, and it just didn't end up working out. The timing didn't work out very very well. It wasn't any sort of falling out. Right. But and I, by that I, point, he did have Ninth Configuration under his belt. So he he had at least proved that he could semi-competently direct a movie himself. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that would have been a very, very different movie. All right. Uh, I think I kind of, well, this, this could have a couple of uh, different answers, but uh, we'll see what you guys say. So, Simon, who's the MVP of this movie for you? I mean... Obviously, it's got to be Blatty, but there's there's something specific I wanted to say about his work on this movie, especially the writing, which is that, um, you know, Ricky, you mentioned that this this idea of war on religion or you know, people losing their spirituality or losing their connection to God. And I think the reason this movie works so well is that a more didactic writer would have had characters sort of bemoan the fact that uh, people have lost their connection to God, they've lose their, you know, they're turning to uh, apostasy or whatever. Um, But I think what makes this movie so great is that it has so much empathy for the Kinderman character, who's really our point of view character. um, And, you know, he is surrounded by people with conviction and yet has none himself other than, of course, how fallen and awful everything is. Um, and, 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 you know, the, having the will to soldier on, which crucially does not come from a belief in God. And I, I think, um, the one major reason the film works so well is that it doesn't have a didactic sort of, um, preachy tone about it, which I think it could have so easily had, especially from, uh, from the point of view of a screen, from a screenwriter who, who is coming from potentially a religious background. It, it, it has the empathy to say, yes, it is hard to live in this world, you know, away from God's light and away from God's presence, or at least, you know, away from his obvious presence, away from his, uh, you know, he seems to, to, to observe these events and never intervene. And it does wear on you. And it, and it, it is understandable that people don't have faith and that, and that people turn away from the church or whatever. And, um, in the end, of course, it does become a story about redemption and, and finding faith, but only, only at the very, very final moment, and up until then, it, it is filled with with empathy for non-believers and uh, and for the non-spiritual. And I think uh, he, I think that's a really commendable way to approach this story. Yeah, and the only evidence that there's even a, a force for positivity or goodness in the universe is at the very end with the little light that that 
shines on the crucifix um, of Father Morning so that they can find it, grab it, and then seal the deal. Other than that, you get absolutely no help whatsoever <laughs> from yeah, anyone after, above. Ap- this is after he's gotten the top half of his head peeled off like a fucking <laughs> potato. Right. So at no point does the movie argue that, you know, your life is going to be better if you're a believer, if you're if you're religious. It doesn't say that at all. Um, it's it's basically the opposite. I mean, <laughs> right? Father, Father Karras has to not only die, but like, uh, you know, he has to witness uh, atrocities being done with his own like hollowed out frame. Um, right. It's not it's not cool. Father Dyer has to be conscious while his head is cut off and uh, his body, you know, can see for 20 or his head can see for 20 seconds after. So he gets to see that. And then his blood is all drained into cups. Dude, that's what I said at the start of the podcast. It's like, it's a wonderful life. Frank, Frank Capra's film, but it's like the horror version of it. I mean, if you think about it, that movie is kind of like horrific. Like, would you no want idea. to see what your life would be like if you died and, and it's like really bad for everyone you love and care about. Like that's actually, that's I think that's tight. I would love to see that. Are you kidding? <laughs> I think it would alternate world where I didn't exist and therefore everyone else's life sucks. That would be cool. Validate your entire existence. Exactly. That's <laughs> good, good ego. Me up. <laughs> uh, it's a Wonderful Life has always been one of the most depressing movies ever made, and it needed to have its extremely cheesy ending in order to make you not want to slit your own wrists. Um, I thought <laughs> so, but this, it, I, so Blatty for me, obviously, I think Blatty is the obvious choice in this because it's clearly his vision. This movie's all about him. And even though he surrounded himself with extremely talented people, it does seem to be, this is his movie 100%. Uh, but Rick, maybe, maybe you have a different idea. Well, whose idea was it to deliver the line, I believe in slime and stink? Like, was was it something that was just, like, ad-libbed on a spot by George C. Scott, or was it actually written on the screenplay? I just love that line. Um, no, it's the it's the director. And we, it's always the boring answer on the podcast, but, like, the fact that he actually wrote the screenplay, directed the movie, and he had to also reshoot the movie, re-edit the movie, rewrite the movie, you know what I mean? Because the studio wanted a different kind of movie. So technically he actually made two great movies <laughs> when shooting this, this, this film. And if you look at the editor, like there's three editors. If you look at the composer, the music isn't that good. It's really the sound design. And you have like 50 people working on the sound design. And I just feel like, he, I mean, he's only made two movies, but if you watch his two movies, and if you even like with the original Exorcist, which he wrote, like you, it's clear as day that this guy is all over the place. Like his fingerprints are all over the movie. He most likely had a say in just about every decision that was made, from the sound design to the cinematography to the blocking to the staging of the shots to where, where the actors stand and how they delivered their dialogue. Um, you know. George C. Scott's a great actor. He was in The Changeling also, which is a great horror film. Brad Dourif's a great actor. He's played great villains. Like, for example, he's the voice of uh, Chucky in Child's Play. But I really do think they still need the direction from from him, from the director because it's just like it's it's just it's a it's it's his movie it's his movie from start to finish and you could argue that even the exorcist scene doesn't really feel like it belongs which i do like some people argue that but anyways i don't know i just think it's him it's a boring answer guys sorry 
Well, well, yeah. and it's it's impossible for it to not be him because he's had some version of this story kicking around in that weird skull of his for like 15 plus years. So of course he's worked out the be- the best way to tell this story. Yeah, and, and he's dreamt up all the little details that kind of make this thing. Like the, like we brought up the carp story early on. What the hell does the carp story have to do with anything? But it must have something to do with something because it feels like it's intended to be a powerful it obviously is a character building moment, but I feel like there's even more to it. And if I sat, I'd love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with William Peter Blatty and pick his brain on this movie. Well, he's dead. So sorry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or is he Simon? Uh, all right. So does the Exorcist three, we've talked about a lot of great scenes in this movie. And we've talked about a couple of things that we would change. Does the Exorcist three pass the Howard Hawks test? A great movie must have three great scenes and no bad ones. Yes. Sorry, yeah. there isn't a bad scene in this movie. Yeah, yeah, there, I couldn't there even... are less good scenes, but I I wouldn't call any of them bad. Right, I and for for as much as I'm not sure whether I like the the whole train station scene, I couldn't call it a bad scene. Um, I just think it could have. I guess my own sensibilities would have had it be done differently. Um, but yeah, I don't think that there's a single bad scene in this movie, and there are where's way more than three great scenes in this movie. This in, in, in this is almost great scene after great scene in in some cases. There's very little letdown. I think the the breathing moments are pretty much just in the the investigation itself, or maybe they explain the fingerprints are on the inside of the you know the confession booth. Those are the kind of scenes that sort of let you that separate out what what are real really the showpiece scenes. So there is a rhythm to this movie. It's just. It doesn't really slow down. The, the, the scenes that it in, in, intends to be great are great. They all work really well. Except for maybe the train station scene, but it's not bad. Uh, all right, so do you think, though, that going forward that there is an audience for this movie? Do you think that The Exorcist 3 can actually... I know it's had its problems just simply by being a, a sequel to an inferior movie, and that's happened to a lot of franchises in the past. I mean, obviously, Halloween has probably suffered this. Jaws, for sure. Uh, you bring up Jaws to people now, and they just think that the first movie is a cheesy shark movie. Um, maybe you guys think that too, but I don't. Uh, but there's a lot of franchises that suffer from this. Is there an audience for The Exodus 3 going forward? Uh, I mean, do we still live in a uh, filthy, fallen world uh, full of <laughs> full of sin, vice, murder, and hate? Uh, if so... Not I here in Minnesota. Not... Oh, I beg to differ, <laughs> sir. Um. Yeah. Do you do you think people can find it? Do you think people will find this? Well, it's movie? on Amazon. It's Prime. on Shutter. It's on Shutter. It it's on Amazon everywhere. Prime. It's everywhere. It's on YouTube. I've seen it for years, and I'm a guy who loves movies, and I have skipped by it. Yeah, but that's what I'm here for. That's what the podcast is here for. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I do, it, it, I do it's like Ricky that. said. People see a three next to a, next to a classic title, and they just yeah. assume it's shit. And most of the and and to be fair, it's a fair assumption. It's because yeah. usually the third film in a horror franchise is always bad. You know, like like you think of like Halloween three, and it, and not only is it bad, but it's so different than the rest of the movies in the franchise. There's just something weird about three in a horror movie franchise. But yeah, I think I think you know the bottom line is a lot of people hate the second film. It's the third film in a franchise, and here's the thing the word horror is a really bad word to use when recommending movies to a general audience which is really sad but if you say thriller 
or it's just creepy, not gory and bloody, they will watch it. Like the thing is, a lot of people just don't want to watch a movie because they 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 actually think they're going to see the head getting chopped off. That's not the case, right? That's why, like, right. David Fincher's movies like Zodiac could be considered a horror film to some extent. You know, Mindhunter could be considered a horror TV series, but not really because it's really a thriller. But people are just more open-minded to watching a thriller but not a horror film because when you say horror, they automatically think Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers. Yeah, they think it's going to be a gore fest, and that's what the movie's about. But that's the thing. If he had called the movie Legion, I mean, it still sounds like a horror film, but still – like maybe people would be more willing to watch it, but I'm not entirely sure. But let's face it, like this is a movie where the main actor, like the like the stars of the movie, they're all great character actors, but you don't have like a Brad Pitt or Morgan Freeman, right? So it doesn't have star power. You don't really have a a, a character that's like under sixty years old. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you do have a few, but but most of these the characters in this movie are very very old other than brad Dourif, i guess he's the the serial killer is the only one uh but even he technically is probably like in his 40s because i think he said he died when he was 21 and well i know he died when he was 21 and he's 15 years later but uh you know he's getting up there this is, this is an odd movie i think for a modern audience to watch who are who are not used to watching geriatrics in their in their horror or thriller movies it's also notable that between this movie and the ninth configuration there's like almost no speaking parts for women Mm -hmm. like there's literally none in ninth configuration i think there's there's a little bit here but they're not real characters really well that one nurse is the closest that you get and i cannot remember her name is julie something or other yeah starts with Uh, a k obviously yeah of course right so yeah she she is the closest that they have to a female character in this movie uh, and she's an interesting one for sure because that actress is playing it so bizarre. I can't quite pin that character down, uh, but she makes her mark. She makes she definitely makes an impression in the movie. Wait a minute, isn't Julie the daughter? Yes, Julie's also the daughter, but uh, it's her. It's the nurse's name tag that reminds him in the very end that oh, because remember they they break into that boy's room and they're like ah stop her she's gonna kill that kid and she's got a bag full of toys. And then he sees her name tag, and it's it says Julie, and it reminds him of his daughter, and that's pro- you know he thinks oh that's who the killer is going after. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I think describing this movie, it could be hard for you know a, a modern audience to get into if you describe the characters. I I do think that you have to at least tell them that it is a uh, that there's a, a good story. This this definitely has sort of a a nice little. I wouldn't even say serial killer, just a murder mystery kind of thing, I almost would say. I'm not sure how to describe it. It's going to be interesting to see if this movie continues its, um, I don't want to say reputation. Like it's, It obviously has developed into something that's been well-respected, even though I think at the time it came out, it sort of got mixed reviews. Now, by the way, I don't know how this got such mixed reviews. I'm not sure anybody could hate this movie. Well, it got mixed reviews. It didn't get like really bad reviews. It was more like, some critics just would have preferred the actual director's cut and I'm not sure. I think I, I, I think that a lot of period critics at the time were just as lazy and stupid as most critics now. And, you know, and, and shared the same biases as most audience members had of like assuming it was a threequel and, and going in with, uh, going in with a certain set of expectations and not really being open to the experience. I mean, they're just people after all. And most people are dumb. Yeah, and I, I your your initial thought is going to be that it's a cynical cash grab. This movie is definitely not that. 
it is not a cynical cash grab trying crash grab trying to trade in on the exorcist name um it's definitely the, the studio were there's no, no question about that <laughs> right yeah no he he definitely did not he cares about this franchise and he obviously cared about this story uh, I, I just don't understand how Brad Dourif didn't get nominated for an award for for whatever. Like even an MTV, <laughs> Either. even an MTV Music whatever award. I don't know what was it. Did MTV those exist in nineteen ninety? I'm pretty sure. I, I don't know. I can't remember when the MTV Movie Awards started. Because I, 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 I don't I don't know why MTV ignored noted teen heartthrob Brad Dourif. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But MTV, they for their movie awards, they always had an award for the best villain. Oh my god. Oh my god, you're not gonna believe this. But you what? guys sit down, because you're not gonna believe this. <laughs> okay. Speaking of awards, alright. George C. Scott was nominated worst actor at the Razzies. Ooh, what like act- the hell? Wow. That's, I mean, I, again, I I think this is just down to uh, people being, I, it, it's hard to imagine now, but I think in 1990, you have a certain amount of George C. Scott fatigue because you've, you've seen him do this kind of routine in too many films. Sure. And he does, I, I can totally see how he would have come across as a too old windbag for this kind of thing at the time and even a little bit now. So it, it doesn't totally shock me, even though it's obviously a total miscarriage of justice. He totally looks like an old man losing his cool throughout the whole entire film. Like, I don't think it's an over, over-the-top performance. I think he's just, when you get older, you lose your patience a lot faster, I would think. And he's old. Like, you, you guys even said he looks old. He is old, like, in real life and in the movie. And I don't, like, I can't, I don't understand this at all. I think well, it's and, and again. I don't think it's, it's it's so much about the performance. It was about the perception of the film, which is like like uh, like Patrick said, this general perception of oh, they're doing this again. Oh, and there's this guy we've seen a million times before doing this kind of character. You know, the world weary, um, you know, shaking his fists at the you know the, the old man yells a cloud, uh, you know, from, <laughs> like literally he's that in detective form. Uh, I, I can totally see how that perception came together, even if I think it's lazy. And this is 1990, and they're trying to they're having a sequel to a franchise that's long gone. Essentially, that's the other thing too. It's like yeah. you know, by the time Jaws four rolled around, did anybody even? And that wasn't even 1990. I mean, that was like 88, I think. Did anybody need to see another Jaws? Oh movie? my god, it I was so didn't... excited for Jaws four. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even lying. That was the revenge one, right? Yeah. Yes, it yeah. was. And that was like a 19. <laughs> that was like the late 80s. Almost if they made one more a... of each, they should have done a crossover. <laughs> I know. Almost as good of a revenge movie as The Exorcist 3, uh, but not quite. All right. So you can also, uh, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Simon. You cannot find me online anywhere uh, currently, although hopefully I will start writing for Goomba Stomp um, a, a little more regularly or at all, I would say, although maybe after the new year. Um. But yeah, Rick, where can we find you and the podcast? You can find me everywhere. I'm everywhere. Um, I do this podcast. I also co-host a wrestling podcast on AEW and a Nintendo podcast, which you can find over at Goombastomp.com. All of the podcasts, including the Sword and Cinema podcast. Um, You can find this very podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, you name it. All of the links, once again, are over at Goombastomp.com. If you like the show, give us a rating, send us, send us some feedback, and tell your friends about it. 
Sounds good. All right. Uh, next week, we will be back with As Yet Undetermined Movie. We'll see you then. <laughs>